Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we're back in Come Follow Me. We're looking at Doctrine and Covenants 51 through 59. It's two weeks worth. We are also a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Dialogue actually has a new member. We are proud to welcome Strangers No More, amplifying the unheard in the latter days. Strangers No More hosts Invite All. They are hosted by Latter-day Saint writers discussing their studies of Come Follow Me and their experiences and trials living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have a fairly diverse speakers on their show. They range in age 23 to 54 with a wide range of world and church experience. They have two hosts who are converts and three hosts identify as LGBTQ+, and one is an ally, and one is both mentally and physically disabled, and one is formerly homeless. They are open with their experiences in the world and their struggles with mental and physical challenges as they occur. Together, the strangers discuss living the gospel of Jesus Christ as strangers to one another and the church no longer. Okay, so I'll do a quick summary of the sections, Doctrine and Covenants 51 through 59. 51 is talking about the presiding bishop, Edward Partridge. He organizes properties and the bishop's storehouse in Ohio. 52 is in a conference and it mentions people who are called to be high priests and missionary assignments. So while they're trekking to Missouri, they're also being missionaries. 54 and 56 talk about broken covenants, about consecrating private properties for the saints and other covenants that were broken and the Lord and the leadership's responses to that. 55 talks about William Phelps. He received a call to make books for children to learn the gospel. 57 talks about Independence, Missouri, and that it's the place for Zion. 58 talks about gospel teachings and more information about the new place of gathering in Missouri. 59 talks about Missouri and that it's a consecrated land and they dedicate the land that's meant for the temple in 59. Interesting. That's the summary. So that's a lot of stuff. I know there's a lot going on here, but it's pretty much the move from Ohio to Missouri and everything that comes with the information that they received about Missouri. Okay, but verse 3 in section 51 says, Appoint unto this people their portions, every man equal according to his family, according to his circumstances and his wants and needs. And if this is done correctly, I feel like this verse is really affirming. Like the problem is that whenever there's a policy that centers on equity instead of equality, meaning do we need to define should we define that do you think yeah yeah that's a good idea so equity and equality are different and i'm going to be taking this definition from 
an organization called RISE. It's the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality, and they are a national nonprofit that educates and empowers the sports community to eliminate racial discrimination, champion social justice, and improve race relations. They note that they're often used interchangeably, these concepts, but they are quite different, and if fairness is the goal, equality and equity are two processes through which we can achieve it. Equality simply means everyone is treated the exact same way, regardless of need or any other individual difference. Equity, on the other hand, means everyone is provided with what they need to succeed. In an equality model, a coach gives all of his players the exact same shoes. In an equity model, the coach gives all of his players shoes that are their size. Do you think that explanation was clear, Kitty? Yeah, I like that. Okay. <sighs> I feel like this verse, verse 3, is affirming equity. This is a win for equity instead of equality. But I feel like any time this happens, not even just in the scriptures, but just like in society in general, privileged people still like try to take advantage of it and be like, oh, he's getting more than me. Like, I'm not sure if they like don't get the concept of equity or if it's they just don't like it because they don't like losing their privilege. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so the problem is that people in power will claim that their needs are just as valid as these other people's needs. And so they need more and then they end up raising it and then it ends up as equality again, even though it was trying to go for equity. I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm getting kind of frustrated with different groups and the way they manage things and how people strive for equity, but they don't live up to it. And we see this with LGBTQ people and how we're treated. We see this with disabled people and, and neurodivergent people and how we're treated. We see this with Black and people of color and how they're treated. This is a concept that extends to all of these things. And I think here in the scriptures, they're talking about economic needs, right? Like in terms of getting food and a place to live and things like that, which you can be like, oh, well, that's not related to LGBTQ issues or race issues. But like people don't live in a bubble, you know, and back then, like neurodivergent people still existed, you know, back then black people were still slaves in the United States. So like, how can you say that this doesn't involve all these different things? You know, everything is completely related. Context is so important. Anyway. I really like this verse, but I really, I, I, I don't know if the church is prepared to live up to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I love your thoughts on that. I think, like you said, if it's done correctly, it's a great rule. It's a great way to run things. Verse 9 says, And let every man deal honestly and be alike among this people, and receive alike that you may be one, even as I commanded you. So really, if it's done in the Lord's way, it's great. But if not, I mean, and there's even consequences in this verse for if it's not done mm -hmm. right. But if it's not done right, then it's not going to work. And I love what you pointed out because it's more likely that if it's done incorrectly, the victims of that are going to be marginalized people. Yes. So, yeah, right after the verse that you mentioned, verse 10 says, Let that which belongeth to this people not be taken and given unto that of another church, which as someone who's marginalized in the church, in my unique way, I guess I kind of always look at the church as the oppressor. But I need to remember that early church members 
were marginalized in their own way, not to all extents. I'm not going to say that their experiences of marginalization were in any way at the same level as slavery or these other horrific, horrific things like colonialization and white supremacy and like, no, mm-hmm. those are on two different levels, right? However, they did experience some marginalization back then. And I don't know how much this section is is informed by that. However, if we look at it through that lens, I can see like this verse being affirming for them as a means of gaining back their power, like saying, oh, if people are discriminating against us because of our religion, then I can see them saying like, yeah, we deserve to live, we deserve our own food, and if we give it to the people who are members of different churches who are oppressing us, then we're not surviving, and then we're continuing this cycle, right? I feel like this verse sets the stage for some really terrible things later on, when these church members who used to be marginalized suddenly have more power, because when they go to Utah and they create this theocracy, all of a sudden, the people in the church are the ones with the economic power. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And actually, there were some laws that Brigham Young passed in Utah only a couple decades after these sections in the Doctrine and Covenants that created a monopoly of food and supplies by the church in Salt Lake City and prohibited doing business with people of other faiths. So, like, non-members in Utah were literally starving. And I know this because I did research for <laughs> for this project that I'm working on for my personal creative writing career. Non-members were literally starving because stores wouldn't sell to them or buy their products. Like, it's pretty disgusting like one woman actually like she was jewish she actually got so upset that she like confronted brigham young about it and fanny brooks i think is her name and he ended up making a concession for her and her store but like the discrimination of the latter-day saints against people who were not of their faith in utah was pretty strong and i guess my point in this is that This is an example of how we can't let our experiences of marginalization continue to define us in every aspect of our lives. Like, if we live too long in our singular oppression, then we run the risk of perpetuating that oppression against someone else with different experiences of marginalization. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's important to be intersectional. So I guess... In verse 10, like, yes, you can read it as affirming because they experienced religious oppression back then, the Latter-day Saints, but at the same time, they then used it and weaponized it. So we need to look at it in the historical context and recognize both the problems and the affirmation there. And now bringing it back to 21st century, how is this problematic now? If we're talking about the scriptures as if they're relevant for our days and people take scriptures out of context all the time, then my guess is they're probably going to weaponize this too anyway. Yeah, we need to be very introspective of how we're treating people outside of our faith. And if we're using the things that we're not supposed to use against people, you know, Mm -hmm. like judging people according to our own faith. (laughs) that we've agreed to, but they haven't agreed to, you know. Yeah. And I also think, okay, I'm going to bring up something that is a little bit controversial within certain neurodivergent communities. There's, There's a lot of mental health 
mental illness, mental disorder, advocacy, and I use all those words because there's a lot of different people using all these different words. And part of that, some people who have encountered abuse on the hands of some people who happen to be neurodivergent are also claiming that it's Narcissistic Abuse Awareness Month. Ooh. Yeah. And I actually know someone who had a really terrible situation with someone who happened to be multiply neurodivergent, including NPD. And I talked to this person about it because they were sharing things about their experience and they were mentioning the fact that abuser was narcissistic, like like diagnosably with NPD, right? And I think we've come to an understanding now, but I tried to gently point out that that, that person being narcissistic was marginalized just by virtue of having that mental state. Does that make sense? Yes. However, that doesn't take away their accountability in terms of the abuse that they inflicted on my friend. Does that make sense? And actually, in my opinion, it increases the accountability because you cannot blame the narcissism. You cannot blame all these different things according to the person's neurodivergence for the abuse because there are plenty of people who are NPD or do have NPD or other sorts of neurodivergencies who are great partners, who make loving partners, who live very healthy, full lives. They are not anomalies. Mm. I don't know. I don't want to speculate in terms of that abuser's particular way that their mind worked and why they did the things that they did. But I think you can look at it as an example of what I'm talking about, about letting your marginalization define you so much that you project it on other people and end up abusing them. Does that make sense? Mm. That was his choice. It's not the fact that he had NPD that made him act that way. It's the fact that he was abusive that made him act that way. Anyway, 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 anyway. We're not we're still in section 51. <laughs> in verses 4 through 5, he's talking about inheritances and people who transgress aren't worthy should have to like give up their inheritance and because this is like a communal society to an extent they don't have a way to live you know and i i wonder am i understanding this correctly like basically it seems like it's saying that the church can take back all the person's money and standard of living if they're quote unworthy and I don't agree with that. I don't agree with any system that makes people's ability to survive conditional on their adherence to like arbitrary rules. It's not affirming of neurodivergence, of poverty, of race, of, of any experience of marginalization that makes it difficult for people to conform or to be worthy. And I passed over this last time we talked about Edward Partridge and bishop storehouses and stuff and i wanted to make sure i mention that now because there's so many so many so many ways that we as marginalized people can accidentally break these rules and then be counted as not worthy and then suddenly bam we don't get to live like ugh, i hate that yeah it is confusing i don't know exactly like i even read the compolomy and read like the saints and 
I don't have a total clear understanding of what would qualify as if he shall transgress, he is not accounted worthy. Mm -hmm. Like let's say at the end of the verse, they'll have their portion taken away that was consecrated, blah, blah, blah. And then it says at the end, but shall only have claim on that portion that is deeded unto him. So I don't know. It seems by this verse that it's not like 100% everything that the church has given to you. It's ripped out from under you. But this verse isn't yeah. really specific at all. So yeah, what does that mean? Deeded unto you? How often did that happen? You know, if that only happened one out of 100 times, and I don't know. And that gets into how different consequences can be based on what bishop you have and what state mm, president yes. you have. And there's issues with that too. Yeah. The church was smaller back then, so maybe it wasn't as big of a thing then. But today, for sure, it can be a really big thing. Yeah. And then verse 9, this is my last thing in section 51. I just need to, <laughs> I just need to mention this, that I don't know what this means. Maybe neurotypical and holistic people know what this means. Be alike among this people that you may be one. I don't know what that means. That's so vague. I just That's just frustrating to me. I don't know what that means. I spend my whole life trying to be alike and not piss people off. And like, it's so frustrating for me when people do that, but they don't give me any instructions for how to do that. Anyway, do you know what that means? <laughs> be alike? I read it as like a becoming one thing, like everyone is equal kind of thing. But I don't know if that's how it's meant to be read. I don't know if it's meaning like all of the commandments and be alike, you know, that you should look like this if you're a member of the church, or if it just means like treat people equally. Okay. So I guess you have kind of an assumption of what it means, but you're not, but oh, you, yeah. you're not sure. Yeah, I'm not saying I know. Okay. It. But when you initially read that, did it make sense to you? Yeah, reading it from the beginning of the verse, it made sense. I mean, okay. according to how I understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess, so maybe it is an autistic thing that I'm like, I need more instructions, y'all. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Anyway, section 52. Ah! I have so much for this. <sighs> okay. okay. You go first. You go oh first. You go first. You go first. You go first. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have a lot on this one, too, actually. Let me say this first, in Come Follow Me, when it talks about section 52, verses 14 through 19, I am a little confused mm. on why this is the interpretation for this section. Here's what Come Follow Me says. God gave a pattern for avoiding deception. With many people claiming spiritual manifestations, back to this whole thing, the early saints were concerned about being deceived. How could they tell who was accepted of God? Who? Come follow me. Why is it saying who instead of what? Like, what? I don't like that. It continues in Doctrine and Covenants 52, 14 through 19, the Lord gave a helpful pattern. How can you apply this pattern to detect false messages in the world? You might also use this pattern to evaluate yourself. Consider using phrases for the verses to write questions, such as, when I speak, is my spirit contrite? And then, like, there's so many things in this section that I'm so confused about. What is it even talking about? Like, this, to me, when I read this in Come Follow Me, what I just read, it reads as tone policing. And yes. I don't understand 
what tone policing has to do with avoiding deception. Like if someone says something that's truth, even if it comes across boldly, which we're encouraged to do in the church, by the way, we like praise certain leaders for being bold. If it comes across too boldly, then that could be them trying to deceive you. Like I, I really, I am so confused by this section and what's, what it's even talking about. Just to clarify a little bit more, the verses that it's actually referring to, it's talking about, wherefore he that prayeth whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me if he obey mine ordinances. He that speaketh whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek and edifieth, the same is of God if he obey mine ordinances. Like, yes, I understand that we honor people who are meek and people who are humble in this gospel, but I, I still don't understand what that has to do with recognizing deception and mm. recognizing people quote who are accepted of god and who are not accepted of god i do not understand that connection i'm really trying to like look back at my like molly mormon teachings and really try to understand like where i've been taught this and this just seems so out of left field so what are your thoughts on this First of all, thank you so much for being a white neurotypical woman who is not in favor of tone policing. Like, way to be an ally, Katie. <laughs> like, keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love you for that. And I actually, I, I have context for you. Yes, um, please. I need help. <laughs> okay. So this provides context. I don't think it explains everything away, but in verse... 37, it says, in consequence of transgression, let that which was bestowed upon Heman Bassett be taken from him and placed upon the head of Simon's writer. So I was like, okay, transgression. Anytime anyone's like disciplined in the church, I'm like, ooh, what happened to them? What, what did they do? <laughs> yeah. So I looked up Heman and actually some people say that his name was Herman, Herman Bassett. And actually he's a pretty good example of I say example, but in my notes, I wrote microcosm of what is like wrong with these verses. So I'm taking this from a website called Bassett.net. And it's basically this family's genealogy and like the research that they've done into their own genealogy. Um, oh, wow. So good for them. And they have some other sources from early Latter-day Saint history, the book of John Whitmer, Joseph Smith, try the spirits, times and seasons from History of the Mormonites by Josiah Jones, and from the autobiography of Levi Ward Hancock from the Special Collections of the Harold B. Lee Library at BYU. So they include lots of sources. So the youngest men named in the Doctrine and Covenants were Joseph Smith and Herman Bassett. I'm going to say Herman because I think that makes more sense than Heman. Both of them were 17 years old when first mentioned. The prophet's name appeared in connections with the visitation of the angel Moroni, and Herman's name was listed with his missionary call in Doctrine and Covenants 52. In 1830, Herman was residing with 100 individuals known collectively as the, quote, family, capital F, sharing all things equally on the Isaac Morley farm in Kirtland, Ohio. In October 1830, he, along with many of the family, were baptized by the missionaries who had been sent to the, quote, Lamanites. And they don't put Lamanites in quotes, but I'm putting that in quotes because that's super problematic. When the missionaries left the area, false spirits were detected among the new converts 
and many strange visions were seen. According to local historian Josiah Jones, Herman Bassett had a vision that called him to, quote, go into the world and preach, end quote. Levi Hancock was one of the first to observe Herman as he taught. And this is quoting Levi, saying, quote, Bassett would behave like a baboon. He said he had a revelation he had received in Kirtland from the hand of an angel. He would read it and show pictures of a chorus of angels declared to be gods, then would testify of the truth of the work and believed it all like a fool, end quote. Not only was Levi deceived by Herman, but he was also robbed, and then quoting Levi again, this same Herman Bassett came to me and took my watch out of my pocket and walked off as though it was his. I thought he would bring it back soon, but was disappointed as he sold it. I asked him what he meant by selling my watch. Oh, said he, I thought it was all in the family. Despite his shortcomings, Herman was ordained an elder in the spring of 1831. So this dude is like 18. He attended the fourth general conference of the church. At the conference, he was sternly warned by Prophet Joseph Smith, Heman Bassett, you sit still. The devil wants to sift you. He did not heed the warning, and three days after the conference, a revelation was given instructing Simon's writer to receive the missionary calling once meant for Herman. In consequence of that transgression, let that which was bestowed upon Herman Bassett be taken from him and be placed upon the head of Simon's writer. Which anyway, is quoting Doctrine and Covenants 5237. Yes, so, yeah. Wow. So this is actually connected back to all the manifestations of the spirit that we talked yes. about in an episode previous. Like, I just think it's, he's clearly neurodivergent. Like, he was experiencing manifestations of spirits that other people were not believing him from. And he took the whole admonition of everything being in the family, literally, mm -hmm. um, which... I mean, I would too, if you, if those are the rules and, and everything is communal, like why, I mean. And it's a like brand new rule. Yes. But it's such an autistic thing to be like, okay, these are the rules of the community and I'm following them to the letter and now you're getting mad at me? I don't understand why. What rule did I break? And then the fact that Joseph Smith himself tells him to, like, be still at church. Like, ah! Like, uh, I, I'm, like, stimming so hard right now. I'm so mad. Uh, it just, my heart breaks for him. Like, why is it that whenever I do research on early people who are excommunicated or disciplined by the church, they end up being neurodivergent? Like, is anyone else noticing this? Or I don't know, maybe I'm just called to those people because we're both neurodivergent. I don't know. Just going to verses 15 through 19, like, the fact that it talks about edifying really got to me, too. Because people who are neurotypical and white and privileged, like, they pick and choose what is edifying based off of, like, their standards. Does that make sense? You know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. what is nice, what is beautiful. But, like, these are all informed by your version of what is beautiful, you know? Just because something is not white doesn't mean it's not beautiful. And just because something is not quiet doesn't mean that it's not inspiring. Yeah. I'm so tired of the whole, like, 
God speaks through a still small voice. You have to be quiet and respectful and humble and basically like pushing myself into this little hole if I want God to speak to me. Like, no, Mm -hmm. like I not everybody is quiet and meek and obedient. And we are just as worthy of receiving like revelation and guidance and living worthy lives and having beautiful full lives where we enjoy it to our own extent and where we can contribute and collaborate with other people. Your words are making me realize the connection here that I was missing. The come follow me that says God gave a pattern to avoid deception and why is so confused. One of the scriptures that we often pull on when we talk about the spirit is talking about the fruits of the spirit. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's in the Bible. I don't remember where it is, but it talks about how the fruits of the Spirit are like love and patience and all these things. So I believe that 100%. But what we have to understand is when there are, I mean, especially with the fact of when people have stewardship over us and they come from a different reality from us, if an able bodied, neurotypical person has stewardship over, a disabled or neurodiverse person, and they know the gifts of the spirit are love and all these things, and they see something different than what this disabled neurodiverse person sees, guess which way it's going to go? Guess who has the say in if it's of the spirit or not? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Come Follow Me says, how can you apply this pattern to detect false messages in the world it comes down to the individual. The individual has charge over their own spirit and their own body, and they need to decide for themselves what is of the spirit based on how they feel the spirit, even if it's different yeah. than other people. Yeah, I'm glad you, you found that piece. I just want to add on to that really quick and say that no one, I don't care who they are, has stewardship over your own body. Does that make sense? More than yourself and your own mind. I don't, I really don't care who they are. I I don't care if they're the prophet, God coming down to earth himself. Like if he doesn't have your consent, then he better not touch your body. And then really quickly, because you're talking about fruits and actually in verse 18, it even says, it mentions fruits. It says he that is overcome and bringeth not forth fruits, even according to this pattern is not of me. Mm. You know? So Mm -hmm. I was like, what? What do you mean by overcome? So if a person is overcome by emotion, they're not from God. If a person is overcome because the world just like isn't favorable to their neurotype or their disability, then they're not from God. If a person Mm. is overcome because they have untreated symptoms of mental illness, then they're not from God. It doesn't even say like that aspect of a person is not of God. It literally says, he that is overcome, blah, 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 is not of me. Like it's making a whole blanket statement about the entire person. Right. What about the doctrine of repentance and forgiveness? (laughs) Yeah. What about those? But like, who, who, where are we supposed to read ourselves into in this sense? Does that make sense? Like if we're not of God, then who are we from? Are we... The implication here is that we're of the devil. Mm, Like, do you see how these verses, like, strip us of our humanity? Yeah. (sighs) Wow. Anyway, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, let's talk about how interesting it is that verse 40 says, And remember, in all things, all things, 
the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted, for he that doeth not these things the same is not my disciple. I don't think it's a really big stretch to say that Herman could have been neurodivergent. And I hate when, hate, I hate when able-bodied people or neurotypical people use disabled bodies as like an example and say like, oh, we're going to do these things and we're going to be good people and this is a rule we'll live by. But do you actually do it? Is this actually a priority? Do you understand what it looks like and what it feels like to be disabled and neurodiverse? Can you recognize when people are and do you treat them actually the way this verse says, remember them in all things? I thought it was really cool that it says all things, remember in all things, the poor, the needy, the sick, the afflicted. This made me think of... Serena, you're normally the one that nerds out in the podcast episodes, but I'm going to take a turn and nerd out for a second. Yay! Do it. So this made me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a theory of motivation, which states five categories of human needs that dictate an individual's behavior. The needs are listed in order of basic needs to a position where a person can most flourish. And it's shaped like a triangle. So you read from bottom to top. The most basic needs are at the bottom. And then like true autonomy is at the top, I guess. And a person can only move on to addressing the higher level needs when their basic needs are adequately fulfilled. And I'll kind of explain what the levels of this hierarchy are as I go. So while I'm thinking of this, I kind of broke it down to how the church acts towards vulnerable people. If you look at the hierarchy of needs, the church at the highest level, like the main leadership, it seems to focus on the bottom two levels of the pyramid the most. Those are the physiological needs like water, food, shelter, clothing, And then the next level is safety needs like employment and resources. Through time, the church has given so much money and aid to organizations that help vulnerable people, countries that have gone through natural disasters, and then down to serving individuals through programs that the church has created, like the Bishop Storehouse and Self-Reliance programs. This is not to say that they're perfect at responding to the needs of the afflicted, But it does seem to be a focus when the church thinks of vulnerable people and minorities. That's kind of how they serve. Minorities and vulnerable people, meaning the poor, the sick, the disabled, the elderly. I'd also include others from racial minorities and LGBTQ plus people. The next level in the hierarchy is love and belonging, which includes friendship, family, and a sense of connection. The church encourages this through ministering. I feel like responsibility mostly falls on individual saints to fulfill this need. Although the church has created sections on the church website for disabled people and gay people, which addresses love and belonging. But when you look at these websites, you have to ask a lot of questions on how useful they are. I kind of wrote out questions of what I ask. How often are these resources addressed? How many people even know that they're there? How often are these resources updated? And we have these web pages for disabled and gay people, but where are the web pages specifically for race and the church or 
other LGBTQ people outside of gay people and the church? What about resources for intersex saints or non-binary saints? What about people that don't identify as disabled like deaf saints? Why are they grouped onto the disability page? Shouldn't their identities be known and respected? Okay, I'm going to move on to the next level. Yeah, this is interesting. The next level of Maslow's hierarchy is esteem. Esteem includes respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, and freedom. And then the final level, the top level of the pyramid, is self-actualization. It is the desire to become the most that one can be. Now, toward the most vulnerable in our communities, this is where I believe the church stops. It gives general talks on all our divine potentials and that we are all children of loving heavenly parents, but there isn't really specific guidance or assistance to the most vulnerable here that brings us to a level of respect and self-esteem and status within our marginalization. Why can't we have talks given to us by members of our communities in conference addressing these actual concerns? Or why can't we have special events like the face-to-face events that the church have held, but specifically for disabled people or LGBTQ plus people or non-white people and led by members of their community? Even when you read the sections of scripture that we're reading now in Come Follow Me, these sections that we're reading right now, they specifically refer to the quote-unquote Lamanites, or they specifically refer to disabled people. And Come Follow Me just skips over these sections. It doesn't even address them. Why do saints from these communities have to do so much more work to find their sense of connection, Mm -hmm. especially when these scriptures taken at face value seem to be very exclusive or at least really confusing for people? We, as members of these communities that are marginalized, have to do so much more work to feel like we belong in the church as we are than people that are of the majority, able-bodied, white, men, cisgendered, straight. If we truly belong as we are, why is there such a gap? When there's a gap in the church and certain members are stuck at the bottom levels of this pyramid while others are at the top and thriving, by the way, not by their own work, but by what they are provided by the church and by society, I believe that this creates kind of like a class system in the church If marginalized people are forever held to the bottom of the two levels of the pyramid, they will never feel totally connected to the church and accepted in the church. And Mm -hmm. like I've said, individual members can do work to help this, but so much more can be done faster if this was understood and prioritized at the top leadership levels of the church, if they actually try to leave the 99 and go after the one, if that was actually happening, then we would have sections in Come Follow Me that helped us understand what it means when it's talking about disability and what it means when it's talking about the Lamanites and correct the language and say, this is the language that was used, but it's racist and it's misguided. And here's us pointing (laughs) that out, you know, like, for so long, like, I mean, I took a lot of psychology classes and sociology classes. And so I heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs a lot. And I actually just saw a TikTok the other day where an indigenous person said, uh, actually, Maslow ripped it off from us. (gasps) (gasps) What? Continue. (laughs) Tell me everything. I've never Um, heard this. Yeah. So I just went on a deep dive while you were talking 
I found some articles. Basically, there's a slideshow that was presented at the National Indian Child Welfare Association in 2014, and it was presented by University of Alberta professor Cindy Blackstock. She is a member of the Gitskan First Nation, and she serves as the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, and she's basically showing Maslow's hierarchy of needs on the left as the Western perspective, and then she has the First Nations perspective on the right. So like you said, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the physiological and safety needs are at the bottom, and then it like works up to self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Whereas the First Nations perspective, self-actualization is actually at the bottom and is the foundation. And then community actualization is the middle, and then cultural perpetuity is at the top. And so, I don't know, I, I usually thought of humanism as like being so progressive and so like validating of people and their needs. But it's so interesting to find out that he was appropriating, first of all, I'm not going to tiptoe around that, but like this viewpoint of psychology is biased because of the Western worldview. Does that make sense? Yeah, wow. And Cindy Blackstock even said in her presentation, this is a ripoff from the Blackfoot Nation. Apparently, Maslow, when he developed this theory, he was conducting anthropological research on the Blackfoot Reserve in Alberta, Canada. That's Wow. (laughs) And it was then that Maslow learned of Blackfoot beliefs that shaped his model He later introduced his hierarchy of needs concept in his 1943 paper, quote, a theory of human motivation. And then, of course, it gets famous, you know, but like how many times have we talked about him visiting the Blackfoot Nation? When I saw that TikTok, that was the first time I heard of that, you know, and Blackstock continues. First of all, the triangle is not a triangle. It's a teepee. And the teepees in the Blackfoot tradition always went up and reached to the skies, she said. And... Blackstock says that self-actualization is the foundation and cultural perpetuity is the top of the teepee, and she calls it the, quote, breath of life, and I'm going to quote her. She says, we have been given the ancestors' teachings and the feelings and the spirit. We can do a couple of things with that. We can say that what we know is inadequate and that we're not Indian enough and that we don't know enough about it or we don't want to pass on it, and we hold our breath and our people stop. Or... You can nourish that breath. You can breathe in even deeper the knowledge of others and understand it at a deep level and then breathe it forward. That is the breath of life. So the Blackfoot call it cultural perpetuity, but Blackstock says it essentially holds the same meaning as the Gitskan breath of life belief. It's an understanding that you will be forgotten, but you have a part in ensuring that your people's important teachings live on. Wow. Anyway, and then this article, and this is written by Karen Lincoln Mitchell, Michelle, she comments that it's more than just, do you have water? Do you have shelter? It's about understanding one's place in the world and acknowledging it. It's realizing each day that you've been blessed with basic necessities and giving thanks for them. It's doing your part to help your community and the greater good. And then hopefully these teachings practiced by our own generation will inspire the next generation to take hold of them so they will endure. And she says, 
I see things differently than Maslow saw them. My worldview is based on my whole chunk teachings. That's what motivates me. So I think she's indigenous as well. Anyway, I don't want to discount what you're saying because I think it's so fascinating how you matched up the different things that the church does with different levels of Maslow's interpretation. But you also pointed out that the church isn't doing enough for marginalized people. Obviously, I want there to be accountability and power in the church to make a decision about it. But I think part of it is maybe if we switched it from this like Western centric view from Maslow's view to a different model and recognized and attributed, (laughs) that's really important, to the First Nations perspective, then maybe that would lift up the marginalized people. Yeah. And allow us a place. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this in. And I'm really, really disappointed that I hadn't learned about this before. Well, Even, don't feel bad. I didn't know about it either. I went back to the article that I like, I remembered learning about Maslow's hierarchy in college. And I went back to like a couple articles and was like relearning like what the levels are and trying to make connections. And I'm looking back at these articles and they, of course, don't even mention this First Nations perspective. I looked up the First Nations perspective while you were speaking, and I think it's really interesting that the Western perspective, Maslow's hierarchy, it focuses on individuals' rights over one lifetime, and that's like the analysis, whereas the First Nations perspective, it's expansive. I'm reading this off of, it's a WordPress website called A Digital Native American. It says Mm -hmm. the First Nations perspective is an expansive concept of time and multiple dimensions of reality so it's like looking at perpetuating a community rather than perpetuating an individual and I think that that's so much more useful when we're looking at a community that's suffering rather than Mm -hmm. an individual an individual an individual that all happen to be connected in a way you know like ah I'm so glad you looked this up and brought this in so I think it's really interesting in this model, the First Nations perspective, it's the foundation of the TPA is self-actualization. And it's, if I'm understanding correctly, it's when an individual becomes their best self, that elevates Mm -hmm. community actualization, which perpetuates the culture, which I think is really cool because Serena, we were just talking about how Yes, disabled people have so many different perspectives and lived experiences, and that's valuable. But if a person that's disabled has a better understanding of disability advocacy and activism and rights and history and theory, Mm -hmm. if people have a better understanding of that, then they have a better understanding of themselves and are able to learn more when we have discord together as a community. Does that make sense? That's like the level of self-actualization. And then they're able to contribute to their community actualization, which contributes to their cultural perpetuity. Mm -hmm. In saying this, like, I don't want to say that there's some disabled people that are better than other disabled people because they have an understanding of these things. Like that kind of gets into intellectual superiority, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But, I mean, there are disability advocates that are intellectually disabled. Like, I think that there's a way for all disabled people to contribute to disability advocacy and activism and teach other people about it. And I think that some people 
don't because they choose not to or they're just not interested. And that's fine. Like, I, I don't think that that's bad. My point is, I'm not trying to say this is based on intellectual ability because no matter what yeah. your intellectual ability is, you can contribute to this First Nations perspective process. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it is interesting how internalized ableism forces us to only think about ourselves, I guess, instead of how we relate to the disability community at large. Does that make sense? Hmm. Because you're forced to believe that you're kind of alone in things. Yeah, that you have to do it all by yourself, that you have to overcome <gasps> these things yeah. by yourself. And because you are over quote overcoming them and there we go back to verse 37 or whatever the other that whatever that verse was because you have to overcome these things you're not fighting for systemic change and you're not fighting for your community does that make sense wow yes because we're pressured as disabled people to be independent like that's one of the biggest pressures that we are and we're seen as less because we're not independent when in reality, independence is a lie. Every person in existence is interdependent. Yes, yes, yes. yes and yes. like breaking it down to like, do you have sidewalks? Then you're interdependent. You're using something that's been created for your convenience. Do you use mm -hmm. gas stations? Do you get your food outside of you creating your food yourself? Even if you grow it yourself, where do you get the resources to be able to do that? Like we work as a society. We work as community and that's how we function and the concept of being independent is just totally like not real <laughs> it can't work yeah. based on how we function as a people right now and that's tied to white supremacy and tied to colonialism like the whole independence thing is a very western thing hmm. yeah i'm thinking now that we have the first nations perspective to look at and compare it to the western perspective after I went through and like compared Maslow's hierarchy to what the church is doing, I'm now realizing like if you think about, oh, okay, this is a hard conversation, but I'm going to say it. Do it. If you think about church history in this section, it's talking about how people receive consequences and it's literally calling out individuals like Heman Bassett and he's receiving consequences. And nowadays the church is bigger and it's more likely that you receive actual consequences like excommunication when you involve yourself in your community and become like a representative of an idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Keep going. Like, do we think that Natasha Helfer would have been excommunicated if she had these opinions and just had them privately as an individual? Nope. Nope. No, she was excommunicated because she had them in her profession and she taught them to other people and she had an online following and that's kind of how she gained traction and was mm -hmm. pushed into this disciplinary council. So if you look at the First Nations perspective, that really informs this concept. Like once you self-actualize and move into community actualization, mm -hmm. If it's a concept that the church is against, then that puts you more at risk rather than yeah. if you're an individual working through this process Ooh. yourself. Katie, you're going for it. <laughs> it's it's heartbreaking. And I want, like, my, my Molly Mormon heart is kind of like, yeah, but what's the answer outside of that? That kind of is like, oh, no, the church is all about 
equality or equity and it considers individuals, but I'm like trying to think of how that would fit in and I can't think of it and it's hurting me. Yeah. What do you think, Serena? I remember feeling that way, learning new things or realizing new things about the church and wishing and hoping and and believing maybe there's an explanation out there that will make sense and that will keep the church looking as the good guy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's a process of realizing and being able to make space for, for mourning in your heart and realizing that some things there just simply aren't good explanations for Mm -hmm. that the church has done. And that's a hard conversation. Um, I think that's a conversation that many, many, many people who are outside of the church definitely have had with themselves and definitely people who are still in the church. Some of them need to have these conversations and you brought up a really poignant point. These verses talk about a mission to the quote Lamanites. Like, ah! <laughs> like it's, oh my God. it's all related because for so long, First Nations people have been considered quote Lamanites and as people who were quote wicked and the white people had to come save them. And this, uh, but you're really not saving them. Are you really saving somebody if you're taking them? away from self-actualization if you're destroying their culture like that's not saving them i'm sorry i'm i feel really strongly about this i have indigenous ancestors not on this continent but on other continents and it's just so terrible the influence of white supremacy and colonialism that has stolen our culture and our community from us you know and that makes me really sad and i feel that loss yeah. I feel like something is missing and I feel like I have to keep searching and searching for it and I don't know if I'll ever find it. It's I don't know if I can completely build back everything that white supremacy has taken from my family. Does that make sense? Anyway. And I don't know if native people feel similarly to me in this as someone who's of mixed ancestry because I know these are very different experiences but at the same time I think Derek said one time and I don't know if he was quoting somebody but different experiences of marginalization are different but the tools of oppression are the same right Mm -hmm. and I think we can all us all meaning like disabled people BIPOC people LGBTQ people, neurodivergent people, women, we can all lament the fact that white supremacy and heteronormativity have just erased our avenues towards self-actualization and community. It's really sad that the church has been really complicit in that and, dare I say, instrumental in that. And that brings up questions of missionary work, you know, like it's something we have to reckon with if we're trying to spread this to indigenous peoples what are we taking from them yeah yeah i love that this discussion moved from maslow's to first nations perspective because it it brings a lot out that if you think about it uh, this is maybe a whole nother discussion ah there's so much to this i was just thinking i had a class at uvu that it was called mormons media and culture uh-huh. And it kind of broke down like the history of the church that we don't often talk about. And there was really interesting sources that I had never learned about before. Mm-hmm. And 
we would learn about what's happening in the United States at this time and what policy change was there or what doctrine insight did we gain as a church. And a lot of times we're told in the church, like, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're receiving continual revelation and everything that we receive when changes happen, it's from God. But there are some things that line up with changes that were happening in the United States. And it's really interesting to learn about both of them at the same time. Anyway, I'm thinking about how when you look at the First Nations perspective, if you're in a marginalized community that's, I don't think targeted is really the wrong word, that's targeted by the church and saying like, this is wrong. Like the church teaches that being LGBTQ is wrong and well, acting on it is wrong, right? That's what the church teaches. You as a person, you're not wrong, but if you act on it, then that's not what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But the church also doesn't support other marginalized communities. So that one's kind of like more unsaid, but it's still there, right? So whatever community you're a part of, if you're trying to move from self-actualization to community actualization to cultural perpetuity, it's dangerous to do that, to be a community of LGBTQ people who are proud and strong and doing their thing and also to be looking at the church and saying, hey, we're here, we're doing our thing. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous unless the church changes its policy and says, hey, actually, you were part of the church the whole time and we don't have a problem with it anymore, right? So the more you move up in the First Nations perspective, from self-actualization to community to cultural perpetuity, that's dangerous unless the church changes. That's what I'm trying to say. So that's why people feel so threatened and scared by it, because the more you move forward in this, the more you feel like you're butting heads with the church, right? Because the church church isn't going to change. Like, that's their stance. But also, according to history, if there's more people that are moving in this direction and you have community actualization and you're moving toward cultural perpetuity, that makes it a bigger concern for the church in which they would then be more likely to take it to God and then have an answer from God and then change policy. Am I making sense? I think so. What's your main point though? My point is that the First Nations perspective is really insightful and the Western perspective only gets you so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like the First Nations perspective, it just really shows the pull and the strain in a power hierarchy and like Mm -hmm. going against a power that's bigger than yourself and how it's really hard, but it can bring results. And if you look at the church, if we say in, I don't know, however many years, if the church is going to eventually say LGBTQ people you can live your life and have all the rights of anyone else, regardless Mm -hmm. of your sexuality and your gender identity. If we think that the church is eventually going to get there, part of it has to be LGBTQ people and allies reaching community actualization and reaching cultural perpetuity, because otherwise it won't be a big enough concern for the church leaders to quote unquote, take it to God and find an answer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why it's like, there's so much pressure and so much danger in that. Because if you try to reach for it in a big way, and if there isn't a big enough community, then you risk excommunication like Natasha Helfer. Like 
there isn't enough Natasha Helfers in the church for her to be protected and yeah. for it to not be a concern for the church. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. But at the same time, if no one dares do it because they're not protected, then we won't have enough people to do it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I see what you're saying. I, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the young women's theme, actually. <laughs> like faith, divine nature, individual worth, Knowledge, choice and accountability, good works, integrity, and virtue. Also, they just changed it to include Heavenly Parents instead of Heavenly Father, so that's awesome. But it's just interesting to me because I feel like when I was working on my Young Women's Medallion, like, (laughs) ten years ago, (laughs) I always loved doing the things for divine nature and individual worth. I was the same. I, I, I guess that's what I was drawn to, and I think I was drawn to it because of the whole self-actualization thing, right? I think part of self-actualization is recognizing your own worth. And as you recognize your own worth, then you're better able to lift the worth of others going towards community actualization, right? Mm, Anyway, and so I love how you brought in community. It also makes me think of the pandemic response in the United States and masks. Mm-hmm. And how verse 1 in section 56 says God's anger is kindled against the rebellious. And my gut reaction is like, why are you calling me rebellious? Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to rebel against you because that's just the way my mind is. And I had a terrible stepdad growing up. And anyway, but also it reminds me of the mess because my anger is kindled towards people that don't wear their masks. And that anger has remained constant regardless of what the law is, right? So it's so interesting to me how the reaction to the CDC has been, right? When the CDC said, wear your mask, the people who didn't want to wear their masks were like, uh, we're going to rebel, we hate authority, blah, 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 blah. And now that the CDC said, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask, they're saying, Oh, yeah. haha! Look, we love the CDC. Look what they're saying. And actually, I pointed this out. I shared an article on my Facebook and an older man from my home ward <clears throat> commented on it and said, I don't get it. I thought you loved the CDC. Like you've been telling us this whole time to listen to the CDC and wear a mask. How come you're mm-hmm. changing it on us now? I don't know if he actually is confused or if he was just acting confused, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm like, OK, it's really not that confusing. And this is where it gets back to what we were talking about before, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're only thinking about it from the perspective of, is it a rule? Do I feel like being rebellious or not? Mm -hmm. Then yes, I can see how you would be confused. However, if you think about it from more community-oriented perspectives, like the First Nations perspective, then the principle has remained consistent the whole time. The principle is protect vulnerable people. I don't think that's a hard thing to understand. I think a lot of people who are able-bodied, who are neurotypical, are pretending to not understand this principle when they should have the compassion and capacity to understand that principle. Does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. anyway, this is why we can't put forward obedience as a virtue all the time or rebellion all the time because we'll go wrong if we only do that right now. Although I'm in favor of rebelling against authority. 
I don't want to rebel against authority if the authority is telling me I'm trying to protect other people and that if I don't wear a mask, I could kill other people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And also the issue is most of the time in our neurotypical, able-bodied, white supremacist society, most of the time obedience is in favor of the privileged people. And the pandemic switched that. And that's why people rebelled. And that makes me think of Matthew 20, verse 16, which says, So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, keep going. Wow. But then it didn't completely do that. And I wish it it was still doing that. But I think that's why people were uncomfortable, because these privileged people were being put last for once, and they didn't like it. And... Verse 4 actually in section 56 supports what I'm saying about the CDC. It says, Wherefore I, the Lord, command and revoke as it seemeth me good, and all this to be answered on, upon the heads of the rebellious, saith the Lord. <laughs> you could pretend like the Lord is the CDC. <laughs> Although I hope the Lord is a little bit better than the CDC because I think the CDC kind of gave up about protecting vulnerable people at this point. Anyway, point is, you can't just do obedience versus rebellion as a virtue or as even as a scale because that's very much the western point of view of individual rights privileged over one lifetime it really comes into focus and you can have better care for more people if you look at it from a community oriented point of view like the first nations perspective and self-actualization me putting on my mask is self-actualization by doing that i'm protecting my community and by doing that my community can be perpetuated anyway yeah in this come follow me that we're doing section 58 26 for it is not meet that i should command in all things for he that is compelled in all things the same as a slothful and not a wise servant Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. Ooh. Yeah, you can't be compelled in all things. You have to, it seems like people should be able to think of others and consider public welfare and act on that decision and not be commanded in all things. That leads me to like one of the last things I want to talk about, the verse right after that in section 58. Okay. It says, Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. Mm -hmm. I actually want to refer to one of my friends on this. This is a sister from my mission. Her name is Danica Smith. She has since graduated with an MA in clinical mental health counseling. And she is now a emotional wellness life coach, which is super cool. So Danica wrote about this verse online. She said, in the past, I always liked this phrase, anxiously engaged, but now I have strong feelings about not living the gospel or following Christ because I feel stressed or obligated to, but moving forward peacefully. I really loved her thought on this. I feel like the word anxious or anxiously engaged has a lot of negative connotations, stress. I don't think you should be stressed out in a good cause. I think you should feel good about it. And if the gospel is a stressful cause to you instead of a good cause, then Mm -hmm. something needs to change. And too often we look at ourselves and say, it must be me, I need a change. And (laughs) that's not Mm -hmm. always the case, right? We have the right to feel peace and joy with the gospel and that's what it's supposed to be. And if it needs to be simpler for us to be able to do it, if we need to just focus on 
prayer and that's it or just self-meditation if you aren't able to do prayer like if we I don't know if you need to change how you are doing the gospel because it's bringing so much stress in your life I think people should feel the right to do that yeah I would say any religion is meant to do that yeah any sort of spiritual practice should be uplifting you, helping you towards self-actualization, you know, helping you to become a better version of yourself, however you measure that. Take the good and reject the evil, right? Anyway. One last thing before we close. I can't not give a shout out to the disabled woman that is mentioned in this text. Well, I don't know if she was quote unquote disabled, but she had a disabling condition that resulted in her passing away. Polly Knight, the wife of mm-hmm. Joseph Knight Sr., and he's mentioned in this text, like he was like a leader in the church. They were some of the saints who moved from Ohio to Missouri during this time, and her health began to fade on the trip to Missouri. But she held on and she really wanted to live to be in Missouri, in Zion. Mm-hmm. And she ended up making it to Missouri, and she only lived a couple days before passing away there. Come Follow Me actually says that Doctrine and Covenants 59, 1 through 2 seems to refer specifically to her, to her experience. So let me just read that to kind of close this out. Behold, blessed, saith the Lord, are they who have come up unto this land with an eye single to my glory, according to my commandments. For those that live shall inherit the earth, and those that die shall rest from all their labors and their works shall follow them, and they shall receive a crown in the mansions of my Father, which I have prepared for them. So it's wonderful that our story is included in the Doctrine and Covenants. I think it's sad that she's not mentioned specifically that these verses are referring to her, but that's why this is mentioned in this section, the idea of living or dying and receiving your crown. I thought that was really special. That is really beautiful. Oh, and also she was the first saint laid to rest in Zion. Wow. Yeah. It's funny that they, I'm so used to people referring to Utah as Zion. (laughs) That I'm like, oh, wait, Missouri? Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The meaning of Zion has changed a lot through our church history. And now it's referred to as, what is it? Our hearts. It's in our hearts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, mm, I don't want to get into a discussion about Zionism, but um, yeah, let's just say the discussion about Zionism is very relevant right now with what's going on in Palestine and Israel and the genocide that's happening there. And we need to talk about it. We ran out of time at this point, but I just want our listeners and readers to know that we're not ignoring it because as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we do have to hold ourselves accountable for certain things. So, but I don't want to just make a flippant comment. I want, yeah, there needs to be a whole discussion. Um, was it, what was it that Derek sent us this week? He was like, what do you think about this verse? 5811. Oh my gosh. I have notes on this. I can be really fast. Okay, do it really fast. Yeah. It talks about how the poor, the lame, the deaf, and the blind come in unto the marriage of the Lamb, which actually, this scripture has been quoted in general conference talks. In the 90s, it was referred to like resurrection and how everyone will be perfected. 
But if you read 58, 8 through 11, if you read it as a whole chunk, Mm -hmm. it's more referring to all nations and people will be invited to partake of the rich feast or the blessings of the gospel in preparation for the second coming. Yeah. Derek asked us how we feel about it. And I, I don't know, I personally kind of like it. I like that there's no mention of healing in that verse doesn't set out some ableist standards for us to live up to, to be accepted at Jesus Christ's table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that the disabled people come to the table just as they are, you know? And I think that's pretty rare to see in the scriptures, at least in Doctrine and Covenants, so, yeah. so far. <laughs> so I, yeah, I kind of like that verse. So let us be who we are. <laughs> Thus concludes this episode. Thank you for listening or reading. Please join the conversation on Instagram at Holy Human. That's at W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. And donate to our Patreon. You can do a monthly donation that's less than a cup of hot chocolate or a so delicious. <laughs> that's only $3. And that really helps us because we work hard on these patreon.com slash holyhuman and please reach out to us at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you would like to be involved or if you have any comments or input and facebook.com slash holyhumanpodcast we also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music we access the song through freesound.org thanks everyone we appreciate your support